We're going to be studying Methodism today. And I said it's a study of the Methodist Church, but it's not so much a study of the Methodist Church to just learn about the Methodist Church, but what our emphasis is going to be is to try to go over some things that will be of value, hopefully, if you are trying to study with someone who is part of the Methodist Church. In order to do that, I think you have to have some understanding of the background of Methodism. Uh, basically, most of us know it was started by Charles and John Wesley. Uh, <clears throat> they were actually searching. They were, they were dissatisfied with the Church of England. And they began these holy clubs, or a holy club, back in, when they were at Oxford University in England. And their members of that club established very methodical, very uh, regular habits of Bible study, prayer, and uh, people began to notice this, and were very methodical. They began calling them Methodists. And this grew. And eventually to a point that Wesley, who really didn't intend to start a church himself, but uh, he started organizing preachers, the first conference. And that's a key term that you'll see in Methodism. Uh, eventually, uh, it was a, a, the Methodist Episcopal Church was formed uh, in, in uh, Baltimore, uh, there have been fairly, uh, a number of different divisions, one of which is over the differences in terms of authority of clergy versus laity. That's something that's very significant in Methodist uh, teaching. Uh, there was a division over slavery, which uh, wound up there being three separate groups of Methodists, or primarily separate groups. Uh, they merged back again in the late 30s, and then in 1968, the Methodist Church merged with the Evangelical United Brethren to form the United Methodist Church. Most of the people that you will meet in this area are likely going to be parts of the United Methodist Church. Now, there are other splinter groups, smaller groups, uh, but for the most part, uh, and there are still groups, there are some groups called Wesleyan, and, and Methodists are actually very proud and have no problem being associated with Wesley as their founder. And going back to the things that Wesley taught, they have no problem with that. We look at that as that being that's being a terrible thing, and it is in a great sense. That would that would not be an issue for them. There are three foundational documents, and I say three. Wesley's is really more than just a single document. There's the Articles of Religion of the United Methodist Church, uh, the Confession of Faith from the United Brethren, and then Wesley's sermons and notes. He made quite a few notes about his thinking. Uh, on several passages, particularly on the New Testament. <clears throat> I'm rushing fast. My emphasis is to give you a very brief background, and the, I'll make this stuff available to you, just so you'll know. What I really want to get to is what are the issues that you're going to encounter when you teach. The Methodist Discipline is a book that's produced about every four years after the uh, General Conference, and I'll talk about that in a minute. It actually contains the church law, the church constitution, um, doctrine, various positions. You know, what is the position of the church on this? On marriage and divorce? On homosexuality? All of these things are put inside the discipline. The Methodist view of church is that all the different churches, all the different branches, uh, and I think they would even go back to I am the vine, you are the branches to prove this, that the various denominations make up the church universal. And then the Methodist Church itself has its own separate organization. And they use the term, and this is actually part of one of the creeds they cite, they use the term Catholic in the sense as an adjective to describe universal, the unified, the one whole church. You'll actually hear them use that term quite a bit. I say quite a bit, somewhat. They are very, very structured. They are not like Baptist churches and, and uh, other denominations 
that have no real structural. They have a very well-organized structure that's really very similar to a government, and even our government. They have a balance of power. They have a general conference, which is the legislative, and it is the authority that actually speaks for the church on church positions. They have a council of bishops, which really, there's not really a president, but there is a council of bishops, and bishops oversee various districts or various geographical conferences. They have a judicial council, which is very similar to the Supreme Court. Probably the most, the one that really has the most uh, visibility, for lack of a better word, I would think would be the General Conference because this is a big deal. They meet every four years and in the General Conference itself it's composed of usually about a thousand delegates, half clergy, half laity. And I'm using these terms as they use them. I think most of us understand the distinction between those terms. Uh, they have delegates that are sent by annual conferences and I'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, my mother-in-law actually served as a, as a representative one time. And they go and they actually have to hear petitions. What are we going to change? Can we change church law about this? Um, and they'll be assigned to a committee. And the committee will look at that and they'll think about it. They'll debate that. And that's it. I'm seeing some odd looks on your face. Wow. That is odd to us. To them, this is not that odd. They grew up in it. They think this is God's way of carrying out His will. But they vote, they, they'll, they'll, it'll, be, it'll come out of committee and it'll go and, it'll, and the general conference will vote on whether or not this church law is adopted. And that does sound strange, doesn't it? <clears throat> they have judicial and central conferences. Now, I'll tell you, it's, it's somewhat difficult to understand. And I've got some stuff that I'll give you Wednesday night. I've got some articles by some preachers who are Christians today, New Testament Christians today, or at least they, they, uh, while they lived, and who came out of this. And they had, a hard, they had a hard time understanding the arrangement and the structure. They have jurisdictional conferences. You can see the United States is divided into five. The Southeastern Conference has a bishop that oversees it. There are non-U.S. conferences. Africa, Congo, West Africa. That The United Methodist has a bishop overseeing the work there. <coughs> Those conferences are further subdivided into districts. Okay? Uh, the North Alabama Annual Conference is the, the one that uh, about Birmingham North. It covers all of the United Methodist churches in this area. They would be divided into eight districts. Limestone County churches primarily are in the northwest. There's a few on the eastern side of the county. They're in the northeast district. And again, uh, they have a bishop. That bishop actually is responsible for appointing preachers. United Methodist churches don't appoint their own preachers. They have, that's, 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 that comes from the annual conference, the North Alabama Annual Conference. Most of them will serve two years at a particular congregation, then they'll go to another congregation. And they'll go, and they, now usually some get kind of established. I know one up in um, northwest, uh, the northwest part of this county has been there for years. But a lot of them do get rotated. Individual churches send a part of their contribution to the, North, to, the, to, the annual, to the annual conference, which is, in this case, North Alabama. They have, will have to have a way of raising money, and they raise it in various means, um, but they have to have a way of funding all this. This is what I really want to start getting to now. <clears throat> I hope that gave you an appreciation for what Methodists and how Methodists operate. The basis of their faith is rooted in four different areas. And this is part of their doctrine. This is in their discipline. Scripture, tradition, 
experience and reason. Now, they say some good things, and primarily thinking about faith, we, we, we rely on the Bible. The authoritative measure of the truth is in our beliefs, talking about Scripture. But, we try to discern both the original intention of the text and its meaning for our own faith in life. You see the distinction there? They understand, okay, this is what it meant originally, but we're 2,000 years later. What does it mean today? And they make a distinction, and this really becomes a basis, this and the other things, tradition. They, they, they recognize that the tradition has been handed down to them and things that people have done over time and things that people have changed over time actually make up a part of their doctrine today, okay, of their faith today. Uh, living tradition comes from many ages and many cultures. Experience. We interpret the Bible in a lot of our own a lot of our cumulative experiences. Again, this is official church position. And reason. We use our reason in reading and interpreting the Scripture. We use it in relating the Scripture and tradition to our experience. You see, now, they have no problem seeing a passage that talks about the role of women in the church and totally ignoring that. Because women serve in all levels. How, these four tenets, how far back would they go? Or that, is that a relatively new development? No, I think that goes, I think it goes back to Wesley. I think I've read that. That Wesley, they, they, I didn't see it quoted from Wesley, but they cite that as though it was part of Wesley's thinking. Okay? So, can you see how a person, if they really believe that, and they really believe that's God's intent for us today, You've got to tear this wall down. Okay? You've got to tear this thinking down in order to get them to understand that the Scripture is what we have to base our faith on. I see the uh, I see a common theme running through all these uh, different denominations. The fact is they'll believe the Bible when they want to believe it and they'll change it when they want to change their, their own doctrine when they want to change it. That's the whole thing of being a denomination. Do what we want to do you know, the Bible that's true. Okay. Now, I will say this. There will be some, some groups, I think probably legitimately believe they are following the Bible. They don't make any uh, excuses. I mean, they would recognize that the Scripture would say one thing here, but we do something different, and here's why. Okay. And again, for all these different reasons. But you've got to make a person understand that Scripture, our faith, comes from Scripture, okay? From hearing the Word of God. Only. Only. Exactly. And these other things are not being... They're not pleasing to God when we use these other methods uh, to teach, or to, excuse me, to, to make our faith. Now, I think it's important to know some distinguishing... There are some that are really stand in stark contrast, and I want to talk about a few. The United Methodist Church is regarded as a pro-choice group. Now, one thing they will say, and one thing that I've seen in reading a lot of this, they have a very wonderful way of wording things. And I say that from a human standpoint. Uh, they, you know, it's hard, it, you know, we recognize the tragic conflicts of life that justify abortion, and then they'll say we can't affirm it as an acceptable means control. They try to be everything to everybody. They have been a member of the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice for 35 years. That is a very pro-choice organization. I went to their website just recently. They are very adamant about uh, abortion rights. 
Uh, even just a few days ago, uh, they were they had a link to a uh, decision that President Obama just recently made, lifting a gag order on foreign clinics in terms of them uh, discussing or offering or promoting abortion services. So the United Methodist Church would actually take that position. They would recognize that that's okay. That seems that's hard to believe. Now I will say this, and I've got another thing to say about that in a few minutes. You'll find a very large, diverse. Uh, diversity of opinions among Methodists. There will be some Methodists that will be very adamant that that's wrong. And homosexuality is wrong. And it should never be something that a person should be engaged in. At the same time, you'll find a Methodist that is very liberal in their thinking. And they take very great pride in having that diversity. That's no problem for them as a group. United Methodist Church uh, is open to people who practice homosexuality. There's no system of withdrawal for that sin or for any other sin that I can tell. <clears throat> uh, ministry and openness may include welcoming sexual minorities. Uh, if you're practicing homosexual, you're welcome in their church. Okay. Now, they have struggled with the issue of having those who are ordained as ministers, again, as they use that term, ordained, or appointed to serve in, in, in terms of... Uh, Positions of authority in the Methodist Church, they still have, are maintaining a ban against those who are openly practicing that. That's a big point of debate within the United Methodist Church. There are those who want to remove that. That's been brought up at the conference, at the general conference, and they vote on it. And it's not a, that it's not that uh, overwhelming a vote against it. Again, you see a lot of a variety of opinions in our area. You're going to find a lot of conservative people who don't want all that at all. But they're still part of a group, and they send their money, and they, ha- and they send their support to a group that takes that position. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, they are very adamantly uh, in favor of removing anything to do with roles of men and women, such as what is described, taught in the Bible. Even in our area here, we have a, uh, we have a number of women ministers, or men and uh, women uh, preachers. Uh, they're very... Uh, very uh, they, they very much uh, promote that. Again, if you can throw out what you want to with the Bible because of the experience and tradition and reason, then you have no problem with this. And eventually, they'll accept homosexuality too, completely. You know, that's just that's coming. Do you see? Do you see how you can how that happens when we reject the Bible? Marriage and divorce and remarriage. This is church law. Divorce is a regrettable alternative in the midst of brokenness. You see the beautiful flowery language. It's just almost you almost feel like you're a heel for arguing with it. Divorce does not preclude a new marriage. Now we recognize the Bible does provide means for that, for one condition. But they don't go into that and they don't worry about that. You can get divorced and remarried for any reason and still be welcome in the United Methodist Church. From the articles of religion, this is the doctrine of, of pertaining to salvation. We are justified by faith only. Is the most wholesome doctrine, very full of comfort. That goes way back. Uh, I believe, I think that goes back to Wesley. I'm not 100% sure of that. That has been a tenet of Methodist teaching for years. Of course, the Bible has something to say about that, doesn't it? Uh, so they teach, we are saved by faith only. Uh, they, they do practice baptism in the form of sprinkling or pouring or immersion, depending on what the recipient wants. My wife, Lori, this, this subject is dear to me because she grew up in the Methodist Church. 
And we went through a lot of discussions when we met pertaining to this. So I have a strong background in, in, in trying to teach someone who's been in Methodism. Uh, she was actually baptized in a creek. And most of the time now it will be sprinkling. They actually practiced infant baptism. At one time that was part, thought to be part of original sin that had to be uh, absolved. You see a little bit of an inconsistency there. If that was part of original sin that had to be absolved, something done about it, and that's why we sprinkle babies to make sure you get rid of that original sin. And that, that argues that baptism is essential. But they, don't, they, don't, they would not teach that at all, and of course they would not teach original sin anymore either. Okay. But they still practice the baptism of young children, and, and they, are ready. they don't have to be baptized again, as far as I can tell. And it's just something, it's a way of dedicating the child, is what they will tell you. Now, here's a lot of things I really want to get to. I'm going to see how our time is. I've been doing a lot of talking. The need for scriptural authority in religion is an idea that is completely foreign to Methodist and to many people in the denominational world. And I've got a point later. When we begin to teach that, and we begin to show that to someone... We need to have a good basis for showing that. We don't. I have been taught all my life. Here's the three ways to establish biblical authority: apostolic example, necessary inference, direct command. And I've been able to quote those, and most of you've been able to quote those most of your lives. Here's a question that was asked of me: Where's the passage that tells you how to establish authority? I thought that was a pretty good question after I thought about that. Now, do I dispute that at all? No. Can we demonstrate from the Bible that that's how Jesus appealed to authority? Absolutely. But when we, when we try to teach someone, we've got to be able to go and show them from the Scriptures why we are arguing for a certain thing. We need to be able to tell them and show them, here's why we think this is important. And we need to show them examples of here are people who did things that, that God, as God told them to do it. Uh, many Methodists will not have a very thorough understanding of the Bible. Okay? Now you'll find some that they do study the Bible. They, don't, I mean, they have Bible classes and they, they study Bible books. You know, I think sometimes we have an idea that a lot of people in denominations, particularly one like the Methodists, they just go and they have a party. They have a Super Bowl party. They get together and they eat. And they have fun and play games, and that's all they ever do. They do have Bible classes, and they do study. Um, most of them will have very unfavorable views of us. And I ran into this in teaching Lori and her roommate, who's now a Methodist preacher in this county. Uh, she, a female Methodist preacher. Hopefully you got that from the fact that that was a roommate. <laughs> but uh, I was better clarify that. Well, they only tell you too. That reminds me of something. And I said this a minute ago. You will find a very wide disparity of of uh, people. You will find people that are very conservative in their views on a lot of things. Who who don't drink. You know, they don't do that kind of thing. My wife didn't do that kind of thing. You know, in many ways, she was raised very conservatively, and they went to church. And when she became a member of the Methodist Church, and as she thought as Christian, that was a very real experience to her. That wasn't just something that she was playing at. And I think that will be true for many people in denominations. I think sometimes we grow up and we have such a, and rightly so, a bad view of denominationalism. 
And we just think that a lot of people are there. It's just a social group. In many ways it is. But they are very committed, a lot of them. And they are out trying to do things for other people. Things that they feel like are what God intends us for us to do. You know, I remember Lori's roommate telling me, well, she was surprised when we, when I said that we uh, believe the Old Testament. Oh, I didn't think y'all believe the Old Testament. And I think there have been some Christians through the years probably that have taken a position such that it makes it look that way. Okay, I know that we don't do that here. Obviously, we are very much uh, involved in teaching Old and New Testament. Um, let's keep going. As I said earlier, many Methodists will not agree with official church positions on things like abortion, homosexuality. I think most of them will pretty much go along with women preachers. They pretty much have to. Uh, I mentioned earlier they have no problem or issue with having John Wesley as their founder. A lot of times we think, well, you're, you're a man-made religion, and that makes it wrong. Well, they recognize that they're a man-made religion. And they think that this is okay. This is what carrying out God's will is. If you go and you look at the Methodist website, and you just look and you know some Methodists, they are very much involved in national or global issues. Uh, just Hurricane Katrina relief, Black History Month, which is the month of February, helping the homeless, malaria control in South America. I believe that was South America. Those things are all well and good. But what we have to make them understand is that what is the role of the church as described? What are New Testament Christians collectively supposed to be doing in terms of carrying out God's will? And that all goes back to the idea of Understanding that Scripture is inspired of God and that we have to have authority for what we do in religion. We've got to make that case. And we've got to prove to them this is absolutely necessary. And if it is not, you're not pleasing to God. I mentioned a few minutes ago, they are very, very adept at uh, openness, diversity of opinions, and they craft their positions in such a way. They try not to offend. And it's important to them to keep everybody happy. Let's agree to disagree. They're very involved in what they call ecumenical movements. That is, uh, Baptists and Presbyterians and Methodists all getting together for a common position or for a common cause. Uh, I mentioned they take very, a lot of pride. The clergy-laity distinction is very strong. Okay, There are people who get involved in um, What's called the clergy or official church positions. There are a lot of it's a lot of training that they have to go through, a lot of education they have to go through to be appointed there. Now, people who are considered laity who are not part of the clergy do have an active role uh, in carrying out church functions. But many Methodists, their idea is, well, here's our preacher, and he has gone to seminary, and he's been educated, and he's been trained, he knows more than we do, and they put a lot of confidence in what such a person would say. Again, these are things that you've got to tackle when you're dealing with a person who is in a denomination such as this. I think I've already alluded to this. Local social activities are very much a part of Methodist religion. And they can be very difficult to give up. Okay? There's a, most, in most college campuses, I know where I, when I was at Auburn, there was a Wesley Center, a youth center of some sort. Uh, that was something my wife went to. And there would be things, and yes, they would have social activities, but they also have Bible studies. And they would have social activities as, as a, a connection, in connection with that. 
One thing I've run into is that some may make a distinction between what Jesus said. I know my mother-in-law has said this to me before. And when we pointed out things, what the Apostle Paul wrote, maybe concerning the role of women, I believe was the subject. And, well, did Jesus say that? It's almost as if to say, well, if Jesus didn't say it, I don't have to agree with it. Paul, and Lori said she heard this in a class, that Paul was a male chauvinist pity. That that was taught one day. She also told me of an experience one time in her local church here in the, where she grew up. They were reading uh, some passages dealing with the role of woman in First Peter. And some of the women says, oh, no, no, no. As if, we don't, we don't agree with that. Again, this all goes back to that foundational basis of faith. We don't have to believe it if our tradition or experience or reason contradicts it. Uh, one thing I ran into uh, in, in teaching, in trying to teach, and this was not something Lori brought up to me, but this was something her roommate brought up to me. She said, uh, and I pointed out, well, here's how God dealt with people who disobeyed Him. And I cited, uh, I don't remember what we were talking about now, it was an Old Testament example. Well, that was a wrathful God back then. As if God was somehow different then than He is now. And that's a, that's a subject that you may have to tackle in dealing with, uh, with people from this group. I think probably the biggest thing that you're going to have to do is that you've got to prove to them that they are lost. That their conversion was not valid. And that's not an easy task. Particularly if it was real and it was an emotional experience. You've got to show them from the Scripture why that was not true. Otherwise, why are they ever going to be converted? Why, why would they need to do anything else? You've got to show the relevancy of the Scriptures to us today. They're going to say, well, customs are the reason that Paul wrote what he did on certain issues. And we've got to go back and show, no, that's not the case. Here's why Paul appealed to that. Here's why we can say this is what God's will is for us today. You've got to prove that it's still applicable. You've got to show them not one church is not as good as another. You know, you've got once they you've convinced them, okay, there are things that, you know, I think you're right. There are things we're doing that are not according to scripture, and that kind of concerns me. And you've kind of convinced me now that that this is really um, that this is a problem, and I, and I need to uh, I need to make a change. But you've got to show them, okay, here, here's why you ought to come worship with us. Here's why we are trying to be New Testament Christians. Here's how we are New Testament Christians. Because what they don't want to do is to leave this one and all this thing they had invested in this and then come over here and be something else and find out in ten years, well, you're not really doing what things doing what you ought to do according to the Bible either. You see the point? They've got to know that. Um, I'm going a lot faster than I thought I would. If you want to say something, just please speak up. I didn't mean to just dominate the discussion this much. Here's something that you may not have ever thought about. But I've seen this, I believe, on more than one occasion. Sometimes it's important to them for you to take their own Bible and show them what the Bible teaches. Because how do they know you don't have some corrupted version of the Bible? Because they are out there. Okay, The Jehovah's Witnesses have, a, have their own rewritten Bible, as most of you know. Of course, the Mormons have extra, uh, they don't have really a rewritten Bible, but they have an ad- additional documents. But if you can take and show them from their own Bible, here's what the Bible teaches on this subject. Now, you may have to get around their version of the Bible, and that could be a problem. 
But if they're using a what we consider to be a fairly reliable uh, Bible, and, and many of them will, uh, they do. I think the Methodists use the Revised Standard Version, or they did at one time, and that that version in a few areas does have some problems. But for the most part, you can take it and show them the truth on issues. Um, and I mentioned this already. You've got to show the necessity of religious authority. Now, I didn't mean to sound like I dispute that we can establish authority in those three methods. I don't mean that to sound that way at all. I believe that we can and should. But if you walk in and, and show that as a creed and say, well, here's the three ways, and that's it, and that's all you say, you've you cited it as a creed, and what, what good is that? That's just something that you've decided in, in terms of... of um, in terms of authority. You've got to be ready to defend your practices. You know, why do you have this in your church? Okay, you've told me I can't, we're doing all these things that are wrong. Okay, I, I see that. But why do you have plants decorating your stage? Now, that may seem very silly to us in some ways, but that's the kind of questions you're going to do and you're going to have to do it. If you're going to practice, you better be ready to defend it. I don't mean to scare anybody away from teaching, but you're going to be hit with these kind of questions and you need to know how to deal with that. Why do you have a water cooler back there? Um, this is a very important point right here. The person you're teaching can sense your level of commitment. And, and, and my wife, who was not my wife at the time, i tell you something that drew her to being a Christian was observing other Christians. The fact that when finals were taking place the next day, Christians went to church. They didn't skip church to study for finals. Her, you know, that would not be anything problem for her. Again, she was a religious person. But that wouldn't be an issue. Well, I've got a final next day. I need to stay home and study. Christians, the ones that she saw, they went to church on Sunday. They went both times. They got up early and they studied. And they went to Bible study. And they participated in worship. They went on Wednesday nights. They missed the basketball game that was on Wednesday night during the services. <coughs> Not that basketball was that important to her, it wasn't. But, and I don't mean to keep using her as an example. Uh, but they were going to see that. We can't play at religion and try to convert somebody else. And I'll tell you something else that was important. All sorts of issues come up. Uh, modest apparel would be an issue that would come up. Again, or it wasn't really that bad in that extreme compared to some people. But there were things that she didn't know that she had to learn about that. And, and you know, that, that was a topic that came up. And she saw another Christian that I went to church with wearing shorts one day. And here I have been trying to teach her the, the error of that. Well, you, are, you guys are a very serious group. How, why are you trying to teach me something relative to that position and here, one of your own members is trying to practice. Our, and you, you may have an impact on an individual you're not even teaching. You might not even know it. So I bring that up in that discussion because I think it's, I think it's relevant. Our, our level of commitment to, to doing right will be sensed by other people. And it's a good thing to keep in mind. We need to demonstrate that God does not approve of differences in religion. There's a very good tract that's written by Grover Stevens. It pertains to why I left the Baptist church. If you ever had a chance to read it, you ought to read it. He argues and he reasons and he tells you he brings out his own uh, experience in leaving the Baptist church. 
And one thing that really caught him is that does God approve of everybody teaching all these different things? Does God approve of the Baptist preacher teaching the impossibility of apostasy and that baptism should only be immersion? And at the same time, is he standing for the Methodist church preacher teaching that you can be sprinkled and you can be lost after you're saved? Does God teach both of those? Does God stand behind both of those? And the answer is obviously no. He said, it's like, well, we all teach these individual things and then, well, it don't matter because we're all going to the same place anyway. That was a problem for him. And if you can show from the Bible that God um, does approve of that kind of thing, it can be a very powerful and persuasive argument. Uh, I think I've mentioned this already, uh, and I'm sorry for duplicating some things. You may have to overcome the idea that Methodist preachers trained in seminaries are, are very good sources of authority. Uh, that wasn't a big problem for us because the questions she was going and asking her preachers, they either didn't know the answers or wouldn't answer. <laughs> now, one or two did make an effort to. It was interesting. One tried to go to the passage of sprinkling blood to prove that it's okay to sprinkle. Which to me was like, well, why even bother? Because you don't need authority for anything that you do because tradition and reason and experience can be basis of faith. Why even, try, why even bother arguing from the Bible? But he tried to do that. Um, you may have to actually defend the Bible itself in terms of, well, how do I know this is really the Bible? What about those other apocryphal books that are out there that we don't consider to be part of the biblical canon, as, as the world uses that term? You know, how do you establish that? How are those things, you know, what about those other books? Well, how are these just these, these books? And I think the, I believe the Revised Standard Version, the one that I saw actually include, includes some of those other books. Again, if you don't really regard Scripture alone as the true basis of God's Word, then that opens up a lot of questions that you have to deal with. Um, I started jotting down some things. Let me ask you, let me stop right here at this point. What are your thoughts? I've, I've talked, what time did we usually stop class? You think after... Fifteen years, I would know that. Five more minutes. Okay, we've done it about right. What I want to do, I've got a list of questions, 14 questions, and you can maybe think of some other questions. I would like to spend the next class dealing with some of these questions and you doing your research and me doing mine and let's talk about it to the extent that we can. How do we do some of these things? How are we going to develop these kind of things? Now, you notice I didn't get into a lot of uh, discussion about uh, religious worship. Instrumental music is an issue. Um, If you can establish the need for biblical authority, you can make a good case for why we should be worshiping within us. Now, that'd be one of those misconceptions they would have about us. Well, you don't like music. You You think music in any sense is wrong. Well, no. We just don't believe it's a part of the worship we're to offer to God. We have to show that. Um, your thoughts? Would you say it's easier to study and reach someone who comes from that place where they already disagree with the, the hierarchy on things like homosexuality and abortion because they're already saying the Bible authority is more? You know, they're in that conservative sense in their mind, so they may have more respect for the Bible? You know, in my opinion, I would say yes. Yeah, because they recognize the Bible says that's wrong. And again, again, you will see a large varying degree of people in that church and some who 
They don't know anything about the Bible. Of course, you see that in every group, including us sometimes. Hopefully, here we, we've, we've taken measures to be a little better about that. You'll see varying levels of commitment. Okay? You see people that are part of these churches that play at religion or just going for the social aspect and really don't care about anything else. Then you'll find some who are very studious and very committed to what they're doing. I have no doubt that Lori's roommate, she is totally committed to what she's doing. She, she is a very sincere person in many ways. I don't doubt that at all. What else? I've talked and talked and talked, and I didn't mean to dominate the discussion like this. Yes. Have they ever connected with the Episcopal Church? We know now. To my knowledge, no. Um, now, the <coughs> their roots are in the Church of England. Okay, John and Charles Wesley were Anglican. They were part of the Anglican Church. I can't remember what their roles were. They became dissatisfied with what they called the formality and the sterile nature of their worship. And they sought for more. They were searching. You know, they recognized the problem. And that's why they established the society and these clubs. I think the Episcopal Church is actually the Church of England in America. Yes. So there's somewhat of a connection. There is. And actually the initial name for the church was uh, the Methodist Episcopal Church in America. Okay, so there is a connection. Um, what else? I've heard that they have a, an affiliation with the Catholic Church. And that they will tell you that they go back and come from the Catholic Church, some of them will. Uh, I think they would recognize the Catholic Church as the is the one that came as the true church from a sense of it originated with the original church. They would say that. They use that term Catholic church to mean whole or you know, total, complete church, universal church. I got these questions. I think it would be profitable for us to, uh, to go over these things because I think in the context of study, you know, how would you go about doing some things? I've got some passages that prove conversion as defined in Methodist doctrine isn't valid. You're going to have to be prepared to show that person that. They need to see that from the Bible. So if y'all can, we can hand these out. On that point, Scott, um, that's that's true of any denominational person that you wish to convert. It, it, you have to show that their conversion was not valid. Else, what's the point? Why would they? Why would they change? Right. And that's becoming increasingly difficult today because our society is so tolerant and. Right. And and you know there there are many even among us who are making efforts to fellowship any and everyone, and so that's becoming an increasingly difficult thing. But you can't convert anyone who isn't lost. You see what I'm right, saying? Right, exactly. And I I totally agree with that. And that's to me that's your primary absolute focus. And I, I meant to try to say it that way. I may not have done a very good job. <coughs> you would have an appreciation for that. You know, if I'm fine, why do I need to change? You know how I thought I've been. I thought I was going to heaven. <coughs> and that's not an easy task. And I'll tell you something else: the issue of relatives and family and friends—that's a difficult one to overcome. But there are passages that are very powerful that can argue and make a person think. Let's try to talk about these questions uh, next week, or excuse me, next uh, Wednesday, Lord willing, and hopefully. Maybe you'll have some other things you want to bring up then. Thank you.